Thank you for listening to Kazda EdCast, where we explore issues and ideas of K-12 education and speak with teachers and administrators about their experiences serving the needs of students in our region. Uh, welcome, Kazda EdCast listeners. This is Mike Piccarillo, Executive Director for Kazda, with another Kazda EdCast. And today we are fortunate enough to have with us some very special guests. With us from the National Urban Alliance are uh, Dr. Eric Cooper, who's the founder and president, and Dr. Yvette Jackson, who's a senior scholar. And we also have with us uh, one, of our exec or one of our educational consultants for CASDA, Dale Ghetto. So welcome to Dr. Cooper, Dr. Jackson, and Dale. Appreciate you uh, spending some time with us today. We, we really want to talk about the NUA and its work. And then we'll get off into a bunch of different tangents as we go along. But again, thank you so, so much for being here with us today. We really do appreciate it. And um, we would like to start with really having either Dr. Cooper or Dr. Jackson talk a little bit about the work of the NUA and what its purpose is and you know, where you've been going, especially really recently in the pandemic with this work. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, Talk a little bit about NUA, we, we'd appreciate it. Dr. Jackson, why don't you go ahead? Uh, definitely misses you. This is <laughs> Eric. Eric as the president and founder has. All right. Well, first of, first of all, let me- We have several hours. <laughs> the NUA was started with the support of the college board and Columbia University's Teachers College. And it was started because of discussions that were underway with a number of superintendents across the country and um, a, the vice president for the public broadcasting service, the president of Simon and & Schuster. Um, and it got started because I was a graduate student at Columbia and I was the associate director for program development and research at the college board. And I began to argue with some of my colleagues that the standards that we're using in, in advanced placement programs as an example, or the fact that the SAT was really not an aptitude test, but more of an achievement test, I began to push that theme. And it was felt that in terms of going out and working in the field, as I often did, and getting to know school districts and, and school people, um, teachers and principals and, and parents and students, um, I, you know, it was felt that there was a need for an organization that was focused in on the classroom and the student that really began to be, that needed to be the focus of change. Yeah, there's, there was at that point, the International Reading Association, ASCD, AASA, now it's, now it's International Literacy Association. There are many organizations, but we felt that professional learning was, was a missing piece in a sustained way, not just professional learning that you, or professional development that you receive at a conference, which is important and all good, but professional learning that was sustained and really um, involved the, let's call them the NUA representatives rolling up their sleeves and working directly with the students and the teachers in their classrooms, modeling and demonstrating. So I was able to convince the president of Teachers College and the president of the college board, who, by the way, I, you know, as I indicated, I was associated with them, to focus on a new organization that captured what the NAACP stood for, you know, National Association of the Advancement of Colored People, mm -hmm. um, but in, in an educational organization. So it was felt that we needed advocacy, 
four teachers, four students, four schools, four parents. And we needed the kind of uh, professional learning that engaged people in what was being taught to us through cognitive science, cognitive psychology, and neuroscience. That's key. That's key. So it was founded on those beliefs. But the belief that is at the center of the NUA and our work, which is which speaks to Yvette and all the, her work that she does, um, is is an is a it, we wanted to substantiate an irrefutable belief in the capacity of all children, and I mean all children, to succeed at the highest levels. And I mean all children. Why I say that is because in the halls of Columbia Teachers College, I met Reuben Feuerstein and Reuben Feuerstein taught me, he said to me in the hallways, you know, those August halls, you know, and he had, he had this beard and he looked like Piaget. And, and he said to me, Eric, Eric, do you think God would create few sets of people, one destined for gifted education and one destined for special ed? And I said, no, no, I know, I know, I know. I'm a special educator, Ruben. And he said to me, Eric, let me prove to you. Let me prove to you that a child with Down syndrome, with reported IQ of 72 could succeed. And then he started telling me stories. And that's so important for us to tell stories so that people really learn from the metaphor, from the language, from the experience and their beliefs are raised. And he told me about this one student of his who was you know, identified with an IQ of 72. Michael, 72, wow. 72. He worked with that child for several years. Now that child was found, the parents found Reuben in Israel where he was revered um, and worked with him. And guess what? I'm gonna jump the story. Yvette knows this, I'm gonna jump ahead. That kid <laughs> is now a clinical psychologist with a PhD <laughs> and a reported IQ. So. We say an irrefutable belief in the capacity of all children to succeed. Now, not everyone needs to go to college, but if they get into a vocation and good paying jobs like, like plumbers and, and uh, construction workers or whatever, you know, we found at the college board that to do well, and this was back in the late 80s and early 90s, to do well, every single employee going into the 21st century was going to need a reading comprehension ability of at the least a first year college student, at the least a first year college student to understand the manuals, to be able to translate this, you know, mm -hmm. in a manner that enabled them to succeed in, in their occupation, whatever they chose. So the NUA became an advocacy group for all children, an advocacy group, I mean all children, an advocacy group for teachers and, and, and educators an advocacy group for the relationships that need to be happening in the community that sustain the change. Because what we're seeing, Yvette and I were seeing in New York were some really great examples of fantastic schools like Debbie Myers School, Central Park East. Excellent school. I got to film because I got a MacArthur Award and I got to film at her school for, for a PBS documentary, several of them that I produced. And I said to, I said to Debbie, you know what? from what I'm learning is that we have got to translate what you're doing so more schools in New York City follow what you're modeling and demonstrating. And if we don't do that, Debbie, your school's gonna flounder. You're, it's gonna flounder. 
It's well, not going to have the impact that it needs. So this is where I end. Yeah. It's, so, I'd it, like to ask a question, though. So you, you had these models, and why would some schools not be successful in following these models? Because of the, of the, of the age-old challenge that we have you know, as educators, you know, can you remember being a teacher and you find this great strategy and you want to keep it to yourself so that you are really going to do well with your students? And hey, don't come in and look at my class. I don't want you stealing from me. You know, it's competitive. It's competitive. Mm. It's ego. But that's, it's, but that's it's not there. the only reason. The, the schools are always faced with a conundrum of dealing with the federal government. In other words, the federal government gives money for finding student weaknesses. That's what you're told to look for them. And we're saying, no, you start by looking at student strengths. Right. Now, why do we know that? Because we learned that from gifted education. You don't start by talking about where anybody is weak. That's like me saying to this panel, tell me what you don't do well. And we're going to focus on that. You guys would click off, but your cortisol would go off. So if the feds are saying, let's look at deficiencies. That's right. And we're saying, we're not ignoring them, but that's not how we address them. We don't right. address deficiencies. In fact, we don't call them that. We say underdeveloped areas, just like a muscle on your body. You can build that up. And so what I'm saying to you is we come in with a model and then we have people who will tell us in ours is based on the science of learning. It's not based on an allocation of funding which is where the feds well, go. Yeah. So I will end this and say this, if the feds right now, and God knows, Biden, maybe with your new, uh, you know, uh, what is it? The secretary of education, if they said, we are going to give money based on the strengths in students that you find and that you develop programs to nurture those strengths, all of a sudden, everybody would be finding the, in eight potential in students. As long as the feds are saying we're giving money to find under, they don't say underdeveloped, deficiencies, people focus on that. And we're always against that rub. And so for those districts though, that Eric is, is going to talk more about, who have been working with us over years or maybe not directly working with us anymore. They didn't need to. They have picked up their own pace in the belief in the innate potential of students. The kind of growth that we get there eclipses what happens when you're focusing on, on deficiencies. Well, I would add that the federal government not only looks at the weaknesses, but it's actually it's actually really a deficit. Absolutely, model. Absolutely. It's a deficit model. And yeah. and and school districts get punished. Absolutely, they get punished, and they they actually and the punishment is putting them into these boxes that make it even more difficult for well, that's them. That's the irony. They are punished, but they're telling you to perpetually do. What doesn't help kids? Right. How do you ever get out of that space? That's the irony. And that's why when you look at what they come up with or look at school districts that get taken over by a state, can you name one district that then all of a sudden flourished and thrived and the kids did well? 
None. You cannot identify any. Dale, you were going to say. Yeah, something. no. Dale was. <laughs> Dale has experience with his first hand. Certainly well, <laughs> right. Um, in a, in a couple of different ways. When I first met um, Dr. Cooper and Dr. Jackson, I was the principal of a pre-K through eight neighborhood school. And of course, it was great for the community. It anchored the community. We had a YMCA attached, a school library, and it um, supported the community as well as the, the learners um, in the school. And but because of the of the measurement system from state education, we fell into the, on the wrong side, whatever you want. And so you have two choices. You can take that approach. Or to your point, Dr. Jackson, you can kind of flip the script and put the designation off to the side, apply for grants, and then turn around. And it's really what you do to choose to turn that school around. And partnering with the NUA was such an amazing um, opportunity because we went from the feeling bad about ourselves as teachers and leaders to becoming more empowered and to not only gain the confidence for our students, but our own confidence and confidence. And, um, and so on, on, you know, and I have some stories certainly for later on, but in terms of that, I, my heart goes out every time a list comes out. Um, and I would encourage those leaders um, Yvette, I'm looking the last time we were in the room together, how to transform urban schools through fearless leadership. And so I see that now that I'm um, certainly working with Cassidy, it's really about that, empowering our leaders to, yes, they feel bad. I felt bad about myself, but really to leave that off to the side and to embrace a different mindset. You are that, you are that fearless leader, Dale. Yeah. Well, let's talk about leadership, right? Because, you know, and, and let's kind of mix this with the, the notion of belief systems and, mm -hmm. you know, what people believe and how that influences the way they lead and how that influences the way they teach and how they interact with other human beings. So let's talk about how, how belief is a, a factor, a significant factor in, you know, uh, how schools operate, how leaders lead, how teachers teach in terms of, you know, student performance and, you know, students truly, you know, reaching some level of, of self-actualization and level of success that for themselves, not, not necessarily determined by the state or by the federal government, but success, you know, for themselves in their lives. So let's talk about beliefs. Sure. Well, I want to take beliefs, but I also want just to go back you know, circle back to sure. that point about why, for instance, an innovation does not get adopted in as many schools as it should be. And I'm going to say this in defense of teachers and educators, they have so many issues to deal with. They're putting out so many fires, so many challenges. They don't have time to step back and think about the kinds of prerequisites that they need to put into place or the administrative and organizational arrangements that can help sustain, help build and sustain an innovation. Innovation in this country, the research has said, take, it takes about 25 years before, before it becomes, you know, more pervasive in the system itself. Like for instance, and yeah, I'm, I'm a bit biased, but Yvette's book, The Pedagogy of Confidence is one of the best books that I've seen as it relates to capturing a pedagogy that really is founded on a belief in the capacity of all children to succeed. 
And, you know, um, it, it, it was written in 2011 um, when, while, she was at, while she was a CEO of, of, of the National Urban Alliance. And she worked hard to bring, bring together a book that captures the challenges, but also the hopes and the dreams. And as you said, Michael, it starts with belief. It starts with belief. You can find any number of narratives in, in the Bible, in the Torah, in, in the Talmud, where, in, wherever you want to look, there are those um, stories, those narratives that support the need for people to begin to believe in capacity. Jesus, in Mark 9, talking, you know, coming across this group of people that were, that were about to throw this child into a fire and, and Jesus intervened and the father was crying and screaming he's that his son was possessed by the devil. And Jesus said, you know, Jesus looked at the father and looked at the crowd and he said something like, and I'm paraphrasing, oh, you unbelievers, you unbelievers believe in the capacity of that child to succeed, to get rid of this illness, to get rid of this problem. You know, and Jesus talked to the child and, 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 and the story goes on that the devil was released within this child. And Jesus said, when will you believe? When will you believe? Well, you can find that in any narrative, any religion, in any novel, you can find belief. Belief is what is the first phase or the first stepping stone for creating hope. And hope is the most important, important dynamic in all human beings. Belief animates hope. Hope, there is an authentic biology to hope. We know what happens in the brain. We know what, what, what is released when the, when, when the body is hopeful. Um, and I'm using Jerome Groupman's work at Harvard where he said that, you know, hope is that, is that, renewed, that renewed belief, that renewed feeling when through your mind's eye, you see a path to a better future. It's that accelerated feeling that happens. So when we are enabling people to believe in the capacity of their kids, because they're not looking for strengths, as Yvette argues for and teaches brilliantly across the country, internationally also, they, they, they look for deficits. They look for the deficits that keep kids down. So belief animates hope. Hope then leads to sustained determination because the body is releasing those neurotransmitters that speed up the transmission of thought between and among neurons and is strengthened by the myelin sheath, which is insulation wrapped around a neuron that speeds it out. So when the body emits enkephalins and endorphins, which have analgesic qualities, and, and Groupman has taught that when the bot, when you, through belief, when hope begins to happen in an individual, that the body has the healing capacity to actually destroy a cancer cell. I'm not saying all the time, but if you're more hopeful, you have more chance of being healthy. If you're not helpful, what happens? You end up with ulcers, you become cynical, and your body begins to break down. So what we're talking about in response, Michael, because it is involved answer to your question, sure. belief animates hope. Hope then leads to determination. It leads to, um, uh, Yvette has a formula for it, but it ultimately it leads to confidence. So that sustained belief really begins to take hold and that student gains agency. And that's what's really key. The student gain, gaining agency whereby he or she is learning through um, real world instruction and learning where it is meaningful for them, relevant for them, where they see themselves, they see themselves mirrored 
in what they're learning. So, you know, it's it, where they become self-directed and with the appropriate guidance from the teacher, and that's the key, teach less, learn more. Meaning don't, you got to teach certain things, but, but you don't want to teach things that are, um, that are not creative knowledge. You want to teach you, or, or shallow knowledge. You want to teach creative knowledge that really does build on each other. So it's scaffolding. Those who know cognitive science and reading, it's, you're building on what you know. And the kids know more than they, and I'm about to end this, this part, but kids know much more than they think they know. You know why, Michael? Why? They, because the brain takes in 11 million data sets every single minute. Yeah. It's in there. Yeah. They know more than they think they know. But the key is, is through retrieval, by, 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 by making their thinking real, by revealing for themselves how they're thinking so they become problem solvers. So they're bridging that gap between what they know and what they do not know. And this is really where, where I end. And it was Jerome Bruner. You know, we don't give Bruner enough credit. Jerome Bruner was a brilliant cognitive psychologist. Best definition I've ever heard of intelligence. He says, intelligence is not what you know, but what you do when you don't know what to do. <laughs> That's that. Intelligence is not what you know, but what you do when you don't know what to do. It's not what you memorize. Come on, right. raise your hand. How many have gotten an A in a, in a course? You know, and a month later, you forget all the material, you know, or you got an A in a course and you look back and I said, did I really learn that? Do I really understand it? It's how you're able to become a problem solver a critical thinker, how you're able to be able to collaborate within the group so that you're, you are working as part of a team, skills that we don't teach as much as we should, and how you're able to improve communication through a deeper understanding so that the kids actually can see themselves in what you're teaching and why you're teaching it, the what, why, and how, as it relates to them. So you build on that, Yvette says it so well, you know, you, you look at for the strengths of the students, and one of those strengths is identifying that culture of that child to be shared and you and helping that style to write his own or her own stories mm -hmm. that then enable them to be a better communicator and then places them in, in the world where they can begin to understand where they're going. And it creates that pathway, as Groupman said, toward that brighter future through your mind's eye. Yeah, well, and one of the things that you said that, that of many of the things that you said that, that kind of struck a chord with me is that, you know, kids come into a classroom with a lot more knowledge than they know and then the, or the teacher knows from just life experience. Right, it's right. Not, not like, you know, not, not right. fabricated learning in a fabricated environment, but, but real learning and real life experience. And right. oftentimes we don't capitalize on that. Right. You know, Dr. Jackson... You can certainly jump in on this because this is this is the work you've been doing for so long. Yeah, you know, I was listening to Eric and he just nailed so many things about belief, especially moving into the neuroscience part of it. And I, I just want to say that's why we NUA has based its philosophy on what you do when you believe a child is a gifted child. Like what does gifted education say? And see, as soon as a child is labeled as gifted, all of a sudden we believe. That is what it starts with. The teacher walked in, I got the gifted class. I believe, I believe everybody can do that. Isn't that true? Yes. So that's what happens. Right. When you believe you have value 
for the child and you make sure you choose the kinds of strategies that are going to elicit and make a parent that giftedness of the child. And then you give them invitations to use that. And that's what NUA has always put its belief in. So when you were talking, Michael, earlier about when we ha had the exchange about the feds, if the feds are saying students have deficits, then you will believe that they have deficits and you will data mine for the, and that's, and what did for years people talked about data mining in education. They right. never, they were never talking about finding student strengths that never ever came up. And yet in gifted land, they never say we're gonna do data mining. We just believe, we just believe that they have what it takes. So we're going to be providing the kinds of strategies, practices to elevate that. And so we're saying, if, if the government was right in looking at that, we would not be where we are right now, right? You wouldn't yeah. even have to talk about remediation. You wouldn't talk about, even though few people use that word anymore, they talk about literacy, and that's really a code for remediation. Or, is that a gifted program? You don't say literacy. What were you going to say, Dale? I was going to say, or uh, response to intervention. Yes, exactly. Um, is, is, a, is another code word for that. That's right. And, and that, again, reflects this idea that you don't really believe in the innate capacity. Because if you really believed in the innate capacity, you would be making the choices that would reflect that. It would be about challenging students. It would be about exposing them, building their schema. You know, so when you have people say, well, you don't understand some children just are exposed to more things than others. And I always, my response always is, that's why they come to school. It's like, right. don't tell me about their families. Tell me about what's happening in school. Because we, you see, as people who have children, any of you have children, you already know the answer. You don't deny one child in your family and give somebody else. You really are giving everybody the same, all of your children, the same kind of enrichment. And then as their strengths start becoming apparent, that's when you start saying, oh, okay, well, you know, Eric is going to be, a, is going to play, would you play the sax? Or the, what did you play, Eric? Bass clarinet. I was having Bass that discussion with right? so mom with her son said, okay, Eric's going to get the bass clarinet. His other two brothers are going to get whatever else. You know, that was like my family. My mother said, oh, she's going to turn out to dance. Well, why? But she didn't from birth say, well, Helene's not getting dance, Yvette's getting it. So what I'm saying is look at what we do in school. We start testing children in kindergarten and say, this is kindergarten. Well, Dale's not getting enrichment because she's got to do more reading. That's going to be, and then I say, excuse me, reading comprehension is based on schema. Where do you think schema comes from? Right. It comes from enrichment. It right. comes from exposure. Where do you think language development comes from? It comes from enrichment and mediation, the kind of conversations that get students to be introspective and make the kind of connections that are going to allow them to construct meaning. So we're saying, we already know this. We already know this. And yet, because there's money in testing, because we're going to categor categorically give money in certain ways to certain districts and under certain meanings. You know, I always tell people, 
when we talk about gifted programs and believe, you know, there are no gifted programs in Scarsdale, New York. Nope. Everybody who goes to Scarsdale High School, so everybody, a parent would be furious if you said, we're going to have a gifted program here in Scarsdale and some kids will get in. For the kind of taxes they pay, that's what they're paying for. So how could that be? Those are kids like any other kid. How could that be? It, it is about belief. I just went full circle back to uh, But that was great because, because what Yvette was doing, and I'm just going to reinforce something that she always says that I've learned, and now I just parrot it. She said, she asked the audience, what is, what differentiates gifted education from all the other educations that's going on? And everybody's going around with their different things. And she said, no, 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 no. It's belief. It's expectations. The only difference is expectations. And I got to tell you this story. This is another story. This is a funny story. I'm not going to tell you the district. I'm not going to tell you the colleague who did it. But the colleague who did it was an assistant superintendent. She went into the school one school district off central office one night and she took the special ed kids, special ed folders, and she relabeled them as gifted ed. <laughs> it's a true story. It's a true story. So she labeled them as gifted ed. Guess what happened? Every single one of those special ed students became gifted. They really did. <laughs> You know, it's, so, it's true. That's like the Pygmalion story. You know, yeah. it reminds me, you know, I mean, we know those stories. Right. All you have to do is say here at the birth. Of, does, doesn't everybody believe at the birth of a new baby that this is a gifted individual? Absolutely. Doesn't everybody right. believe that the doctor, the nurse, everybody believes that. And then what happens? Right. Well, yeah. you go, you're four years old, five years old, you're going to get tested. And now uh, the sorting begins. Yeah, the so, sorting. Right. It's, it's like Harry Potter. The sorting <laughs> hat goes on, right? right? And some people are going to Gryffindor and you know, it goes on and on and on. Dale, you were going to say something. I, I just want to say so much. I want to talk about rigor. I work with teachers and that's a struggle. How can I differentiate? I have air quotes how how can i be rigorous i'm i'm doing i'm have a student in a really a self-contained school and i'm talking rigor and he's brand new student teacher and i said that's all individual and it's about to your point believing and finding that child's sweet spot and taking it to the next level and lo and behold and these are non-verbal kids these are kids who are in uh, weighted vests from time to time and really uh, require a lot of support. And there he was, and we've been working on rigor with the student teacher and individual and how are the kids going to respond and unprompted. There, he was doing mass, right? So you think mass, these are second and third grade age. Oh my God. And so he was working through it and unprompted a student yells waterfall. Mm. And the whole class freezes, the teachers freeze, the TAs freeze, the kids look at him. And so I, I really had a, um, this, the student teacher I'm working with took that to heart, believed and, and thought about gases and perfumes and how to really teach that to this group of students. And, and I just had the privilege of, of watching that unfold the other day. So when you talk about you know, bringing in what they know, 
there's no way anybody would know that this student, but because the teacher believed, because the teacher had such high expectations in an environment where typically that's not the case, this student could pull from somewhere um, and demonstrate really his ability to learn, to transfer, and to get a little confident, I yeah. think, in, in that environment right. when everybody just grows. See, see, um, that, te that teacher was providing that student with student with agency. And when mm -hmm. you provide agency, believing in that child, that child finds his or her voice. And student voice, you know, often leads to students making choice in learning, you know, and that's really key. And, and going back to what I was talking about earlier, what we've been talking about, prior knowledge, you know, um, what comes into the brain, 11 million data sets every single minute. It's not about, it's not about storage, it's about retrieval. So what kind of strategies can we use to help reveal how much a child knows about a topic, you know? And that's where our use of thinking maps that Dale Hirely has developed and that Yvette has built on, or our use of our quantum visual tools that really give the opportunity to uncover that prior knowledge. Because guess what? Guess what? And, and neuroscience has proved this out. What leads to high achievement? Is it intelligence? Is it reasoning? The answer is no, because we're all born with 86 to 100 billion neurons in our head. It's not, it's not intelligence, it's not reasoning. It is simply prior knowledge that can be activated to bridge that gap between what you know, don't know, and what you want to learn. I mean, it's that bridging that gap. And so, activating that so that child can actually reveal to him or herself that knowledge that's there. And when that metaphor comes through waterfall, when, when, when student got it and, 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 and using metaphor as a way, because metaphor is how we teach language. Metaphor is, is the key to understanding because with metaphor, you're learning how to categorize and categorization is the key for all higher order learning or higher order thinking. That's not Eric Cooper. That's not Yvette Jackson. That's Jerome Bruner. That's John Dewey. That goes back to the turn of the century. I'm not talking 20th to 21st. I'm talking about 19th century, you know, 1900s when this stuff was talked about. But we fail, we give up because we get fearful as educators about covering. We're, we're, we, we are mired down with this urge to cover it all. Cover it all. Let's cover it all. <laughs> and what we're doing is we're covering, we're covering shallow knowledge, not deep creative knowledge. Right. We need to find out. Yes, it's important to memorize. It's important to learn certain knowledge and, and you know and internalize that. But that's going to be quickly forgotten. What will not be forgotten are those connections that you make conceptually that enables you to build toward another goal of an, a deep understanding that you have to deal with. And part of that class experience, Dale, was that it was collaborative. The students were allowed to chime in. And it was not, and, and the teacher, the teacher, and this is important because, you know, it's always the right answer. It's always that one student putting up their hand and saying, I got it, who, who gets all the attention. You know, it's ability to enable in the classroom the students to fail. And by failing up, 
that's how you really learn. You right. fail. Look, when my guidance counselor said I was not going to go to college, and the only college I could get into was Dutchess Community College. Thank God for community colleges. Only one. And her expectations of me were very low. But I got into that and I began to find my way, you know, even though she didn't believe in me. When you have more counselors, and this is not against guidance counselors, when you have more people that believe, enable the children to reveal what they know and what they need to know, it is so critical. And this is a point too, and I'll, I'll end here. I came up with this term and, and, and while I was at the college board, you know, rather than, cause it was during, remember the at risk, <clears throat> all these kids are at risk. They're at risk, deficit model, everybody's at risk. And I said, wait a minute, <laughs> we're putting these kids at risk. And I said, some students and many students are what I call school dependent. You know, I spoke about it, then I wrote about it in the eighties and nineties are school dependent. People like Lisa Delpit picked up on it because she heard me at a conference at, with the college board. They're school dependent, meaning they're dependent on the school to help them understand how much they know, to believe in them, to help them become hopeful, to keep them from those categories that, that varnish them, put them into a corner and say, well, you know, you're, you're really not capable of learning because you are X, Y, or Z in terms of your, what your behavior is showing. No. That is mistake. We're losing millions of students that way. And what we've learned, and you know, what we've learned in our work, when the teachers and a system, Michael, this is important, Jerome, this is important. When a system begins to believe in all the kids, believe in all the kids, that's when things happen rapidly. And I can talk about Eden Prairie, primarily white, wealthy. Ben and I worked there for many years with a great, great superintendent, Melissa Kroll. You know, we work with them in professional learning, you know, um, with, all, with all the schools for six to seven years. I talked to the entire school staff. And Michael, this is really, and Jerome, this is really critical. When you have presentations, you know, when, when you have a professional development day, the custodian should be invited. The secretary should be invited. Everybody should be invited so they get it. So they get it together. And when you get it together, Miracles happen. So Eden Prairie got the deepest changes, you know, and I'm going to use this term, Yvette, so don't kill me. Reduce the achievement gap, because that's a racist term, because Yvette says, you know, what we should look at is the actual achievement of a child and their potential and that gap that exists. But let's use the term, achieve, you know, achievement gap. We reduced achievement gap by nearly 60%. Jerome, I'm looking at you right now, man. You know what did that? Two standard, deviations, two standard deviations of improvement. Two standard deviations of improvement for those kids of color who are way down there. I mean, that's unheard of. And we get that consistently when there's high fidelity to Yvette's pedagogy, to the NUA's pedagogy. And you know what? When you reduce it, you're not reducing it by lowering the ceiling. You know, white privileged kids made historical gains themselves. Because when every single child is learning, we're all learning because of diversity. You know, diversity, my God, I cry when I walk into a homogenous school. You know, I'm not down on the kids because the kids are there, but I cry because they're being underexposed and undereducated when they're being, when they're being enabled and empowered to learn in diverse situations with different kids. I mean, Biggie Smalls, man, he has so much 
it's a lot of things not to learn from Biggie, but a lot of things to learn from Biggie as it relates to what he was able to do. You know, if you want to be great, if you want to be great, then you got to do, and I'm not going to use a term that I've heard this wrong because this is not appropriate. If you, if you want to be great, then you got to do the friggin' work. You got to be do the friggin' work and you got to learn to embrace failure and you got to have the adults outside of you who are guiding you, who are guiding you. And you want to have a teacher in the role of supporting guided improvisation, guided improvisation, where, where and, and Jerome, you and I know this, because when you improvise as a musician, man, what are you doing? You're playing off of people, right? You're listening to what someone else is saying. You're internalizing it. And guess what happens? You're growing. And so when I'm growing with my music and I'm going, woo, woo, and I'm getting chills, I'm getting chills right now. And it's going through my body and I'm learning. I'm learning because guided improvisation is being put into force. And that's what teachers should be do. They should be setting up the classroom for guided improv so that kids can learn from each other in a creative way. Because, you know, all the subject areas you can teach, they're all important. But if you boil it down to the most important skills for the 21st century, the four C's, collaboration, communication, critical thinking, and creativity. Those are the four goals. Those are the outcomes. Collaboration, communication, collaboration, you got to work as a team. Communication, you got to express yourself. You got to gain the ego strength, the ability to say the wrong thing or say the right thing, you know? And then, and then, and then critical thinking, learning how to be critical. And we're failing in teaching critical thinking in this country. And don't pay attention to these books that say they're critical thinking when all they are are literal questions in the textbook. I could talk about that for, for, for in a workshop. They're not critical, they're literal. They're literal comprehension. Hardly any textbook gets into it in terms of interpretive or inferential comprehension, let alone, let alone, let alone applied or evaluative, evaluative comprehension where you're able to step back. You know, when, okay, I'm gonna say this. When, when, when 70, 70 million people vote for a, former New York, they are not critical thinkers. They're not good inferential thinkers. They're literal thinkers. And they, when you're just literal, you're buying the con and people buy the con. We have got to stop buying the con, con because life is precious. When Yvette talks about that child being born, right? What are the odds of each of us born on this world? Each of us, I'm on all human beings. What are the odds? I'm about to cry, cry. Science has shown us of all the elements in the universe, the odds of us being, the five of us being born is 400 trillion to one against us. Would you play that, Michael, in a racetrack? I wouldn't trade for, play 400 trillion to one. So what does that make us? It makes us miracles, miracles. And we have got to be, we got to look at each other as a miracle, as a miracle that's ready to blossom. We have to be there, not to tear them down but to build them up, to love them, because that really is the purchase of perfect purpose of life. Teaching love to all that we come across. It is enabling all of us to be loved, to be supported, and to be given that God-given gift of that miracle that makes us an opportunity to grow and flourish in that field that we know that we all can flourish in, not to be thrown into a jail and misused that way. 
because of a family or, or, or community circumstances. Probably a good time for us to, to maybe wrap up and just, you know, and, and let's, let's save some, we've, it sounds like we have plenty more to talk about. So let's save that for a part two and a part three. 